Mark chapter 6. It's the section entitled, A Prophet Without Honor. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Let's hear the very word of God. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that he's been given? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, No money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. We pray that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. And back to Mark chapter 6, where we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 13. As you saw in the first part of the reading earlier, Jesus has been in his hometown, as we heard last week, with Dav preaching on that passage, and he's been preaching and he's been teaching, but with disappointing results, as we read in verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Today, in this next passage, Rather than being dissuaded or disappointed by this rejection, we find him instead widening his reach. In the second part of verse 6, we find him going around from teaching from village to village. This is his third missionary tour of Galilee. The first time he'd been accompanied just by four of the disciples, the fishermen. And the second time he had all 12 of the disciples. And now, this time, he's going out alone because he sends the disciples out also. He sends the disciples out to widen that reach even further. The time has come to spread the gospel even further. Now, it's a very short passage, and the significance could be overlooked. This is the start of the spreading of the gospel. It was to find its real meaning in the spreading of the gospel, in the instruction and in accounts of the early church in Acts, as Jesus instructed them after his death and resurrection, when he said in Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in a sense, this event we're looking at today is a precursor to that great explosion of the gospel going out from Jerusalem. So because this was Jesus' plan all along to send his disciples to be witnesses for Jesus, to launch that new church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, why did he send them out now? Why did he send the 12 out now? Well, it seems Jesus was a busy man going from village to village. The time had come. I wonder if if you've ever been entrusted with something, if you've been sent out, if you like. Maybe as a small child, uh, you were sent out to buy the newspaper or the milk from the corner shop by your, your mum and dad. Or perhaps you're entrusted at school to go and do a particular job for the head teacher or for your own teacher or something. You've been sent out of the classroom to go and get something or do something. Some schools, you know, as the children grow up, they're given responsibilities until they become prefects. There is something about responsibility, isn't there? Once it's entrusted to you, you feel bound to carry it out. And you feel empowered to do something, but also to obey. Whether you're a child going out to get the newspaper, or if you're in school being sent on an errand by a teacher. I still remember my first ever duty travel trip abroad when I was working for British Airways back in 2002. I'd never been abroad on business, if you like. I'd always worked at Heathrow Airport, just on the airport. But suddenly I was being told, we need someone to go and do an important meeting in Rome. We want you to go out and meet the Italian air traffic control authorities and deliver a message to them on behalf of the company. And we're empowering you to negotiate on our behalf and to represent the company's interests at this meeting, and we want you to influence its outcome. How did I feel? I was very nervous. I also felt privileged, humbled even, and empowered and trusted to go out and do that. And if you have one of these in your hands, if you have a Bible, if you read it, if you believe it, if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you may also find yourself feeling nervous, but privileged, humbled, empowered, and trusted. The time had come to show that the divine power of Jesus extended beyond his immediate surroundings, beyond himself. His Holy Spirit was extending and extended to his disciples, so that by faith, they too can perform miracles and wonders. In the name of Jesus, they were empowered to act on his behalf. It's a bit like when an apprentice craftsman gets to handle a commission on his own. He's finally entrusted by the master craftsman, if you like, to do something on his own. Jesus has been teaching them for maybe up to two years by now, so he's sending them out on their own to see how they get on. They'll be back later in chapter 6 to report on how it goes. But for now, I'm just going to break this passage down into three short headings. The first one is the gospel goes out, two by two. The second heading is the had and had not. And the third heading is the accept and the accept not. So let's begin with the gospel goes out, two by two. 
So verse 7 again. If you look at verse 7, we read this. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now the other Gospels are helpful here in filling in some extra detail, particularly Matthew chapter 10. If we look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we read in this passage also sent, uh, entitled, Jesus Sends Out the Twelve. We read, Jesus called his twelve disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then he goes on in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter the towns of the Samaritans. Samaria. You see, that instruction is yet to come. We wait for that in Acts when he says, go out all to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But he's just saying, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. The kingdom of heaven has come near. We've heard that before, haven't we? Going through this gospel of Mark. Way back in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus was baptized and after John the Baptist was put in prison, we have a passage entitled, Jesus announces the good news. This is Mark 1.14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, which is where he is now, proclaiming the good news of God. This was his first tour of Galilee. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the disciples on this third tour are being sent out on exactly the same mission as the Lord Jesus Christ. We also read in Mark chapter 1, a bit later on in verse 39, this is talking about Jesus again. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So it's very clear that the disciples are on the same mission that Jesus is on. He's, they're on behalf of Jesus, going out and doing this work, empowered by Jesus. And as an aside, I just want to talk for a moment about these impure spirits and this driving out demons, in case you've ever wondered about such things. Um, in these modern times, we don't tend to use this kind of language. It's not something you hear in common parlance, really. So what's it all about? Some have said that in those days, they didn't really understand illnesses, sicknesses like epilepsy, or schizophrenia, or other mental health illnesses. And they tended to label these things they didn't understand as, um, as demons, as being possessed by demons or impure spirits. However, the Bible suggests that this is not the case, and it's a total misrepresentation. Because in the examples given in the Gospels, where Jesus confronts demons or evil spirits, they recognize Jesus for who he is, as the Son of God. They will even cry out, Son of God, what do you want with me? Someone with mental health, illness, or, or some, someone who had never, never met Jesus before wouldn't know that. Someone with epilepsy who was sick and met Jesus wouldn't know who he was necessarily. And also, Paul writing in the church, to the church at Ephesus writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as we say, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, epilepsy, schizophrenia, and other things are of flesh and blood. They are illnesses, not of the spiritual realms. What I believe happened is that the devil knew the Son of God was coming. He knew he was coming into the world incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that the ministry of the Lord Jesus on earth was coming. So he sent his minions, if you like, out there to try and frustrate his work, to disrupt, to get in the way, to attack people, to possess people. He sent his minions out there ahead of Jesus. Now, most people nowadays are so wrapped up in the world of flesh and blood, as Paul writes, to paraphrase Paul in in that letter, that they don't even consider that a spiritual world actually exists, let alone that there are, as Paul puts it, authorities and powers and spiritual forces of evil at work. See, if people don't believe, then Satan doesn't need to worry about them. He has them in the bag already, if you like. He only attacks where Jesus is at work and where people are going to be saved. He wants to frustrate and stop this work. And that's what we see in the first century AD as Jesus is going out around Galilee. So ahead of Jesus' ministry, Satan has launched, if you like, a preemptive strike. But he could not prevail. And Jesus has conquered all. In the end, through his victory that he declared on the cross. So whether you're a Christian here today or not, know this, the enemy is out there. The Bible warns us. 2 Corinthians 11, second half of verse 14 says this, For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And we must be alert. The Apostle Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So don't let him get a foothold in your life or in your heart. Cling to the cross. So, after that little diversion, let's consider why the gospel went out with the disciples going in twos. I don't know how many of you are fans of crime drama on television, but you can't help but notice that there are always two. There's always the detective inspector and his sergeant. Or if it's like American cop dramas, there's always two plainclothes detectives cruising the streets in a plainclothes car. Um, you probably can think of some of them, some of the twos, if you like. There's Holmes and Watson. There's Starsky and Hutch, for those who perhaps remember that. Bodine Doyle, for those that you're old enough perhaps to remember that one. But it's the same for comedians, isn't it? You get the two Ronnies, Malcolm and Wise, Armstrong and Miller, two by two. And then you have Star Wars, of course. Some of you will know what I'm going to say. Always two there are, the master and an apprentice, says the, the master Yoda. But for the disciples going out two by two, it was in obedience to the Old Testament scriptures. They were going out to bear witness to Jesus. And as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we read this. It's a passage entitled Witnesses, which is what the disciples are doing. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. So 
It says in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses so that it is in obedience to the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus sends out the two by two. He's fulfilling the law. In the New Testament also we see in Paul's writing, in his second letter to the church of Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, he's warning the church to to conduct itself appropriately, and he says this, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I'm sure it's also quite a practical measure. Um, Sometimes people like to go on holiday together um, as as couples or um, as friends together. Um, Two disciples traveling together can pray together. They can worship together. They can encourage each other if they're feeling down or struggling. They can work as a team. They can consult. You see, the Lord is practical in all matters, not just spiritual in all matters. He takes practical considerations into account. And they must have a strong faith, too. These men, they couldn't have done these things without the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they're going out two by two to encourage each other, but they had to believe in what they were doing. And what a joy it must have been to them. As uh, in um, Austin's picture earlier on with a bag, you know, to go out with nothing, just trusting entirely in the Lord, in the Holy Spirit, in everything that they were about to do. So it is a lesson for all believers that we need others around us. We need to lean on others. We need to talk to us. We need to have fellowship and to take counsel with one another. With one another. Let's look at the the second heading I have for you now. The had and the had not. Let's read again the words in verse 8. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. They had some things they could take and some things they couldn't take. So let's just look at a few moments at some of these. What what they had, let's look at what they had. They had a staff. It's a stick, a long stick, and it's something that supports them when you're walking along, perhaps, and it can be helpful in the dark, because you're going to hold it out in front of you in case there are any trip hazards. And it can be used to defend yourself from wild animals or from robbers. These Such things were possible in that day and age. Sandals, protecting your feet against those hard, rocky roads. Essential if you want to get anywhere, especially in the hot, hard climate. What they had not, bread, well, that's useful because it gives you strength, keeps you, keeps you going. And bread can last for a few days in your, in your bag, in your knapsack or whatever, and you can eat it as you're going along. So were they to take nothing to eat? And a bag, a bag's useful to keep things in, like the bread. So they took nothing with them. And money, no money. So they could buy no provisions. They couldn't provide for themselves. And an extra shirt. The purpose of an extra shirt is if you were caught out late at night on the roadside and you didn't have anywhere to stay, you could put extra clothing on to keep you warm on the night as you curled up beside the road in the open air. I mean, mean, it was was hot in in the Middle East, but at night it can get cold. So no spare clothes? I don't know how much stuff you like to pack 
when you're going on holiday or going on a trip. I'm sure if uh, Austin and the boys were going to watch a football match in France or Germany, they'd probably take more than a little rucksack. But these disciples don't like, sound like they're taking anything. Some of you may know what it's like to arrive in a destination and to be told by the airline as you go into the arrivals hall that I'm afraid your bag has been mislaid. Has that happened to anyone here? Thankfully, it's never happened to me, but it would completely throw you. Can you imagine it? You have only the clothes you are stood up in that you're on that flight with and your hand luggage. How would you feel? Vulnerable? Unprepared? It's like Jesus is teaching these disciples a lesson on dependability. He is saying that they should entirely trust on him to provide everything, like a shelter for the night, something to eat, something to wear, whatever they need. You know, if you were in a arrivals hall and you had nothing, you'd be entirely dependent on the airline actually finding a bag and bringing it to you. But these disciples are entirely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ for everything, spiritual and material. Interestingly enough, we've been, we've been looking um, at some of these kind of topics in our midweek series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Austin spoke on this topic of dependability, if you like, way back at the beginning of the year. Matthew 6, very familiar words. Matthew 6, verse 25, entitled, Do Not Worry. If you like, do not worry about uh, the things you will take. We read this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. This is what the disciples are having to deal with. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? These disciples are going out and spreading the gospel. They're spreading life. They have the message of life through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life. And then later on in verse 33 of Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's what we have as our verse for the year. Think about it. It's our verse of the year, 2019. The disciples really knew what this meant when they were going out with nothing but a staff and the sandals on their feet to tell the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, entirely trusting in him with nothing to carry, just the job to preach the good news. His kingdom and his righteousness and Jesus will provide them with all the things, all the other things they need. There would be some, of course, in each village who would give them a bed for the night, who would share a meal with them, who will honour the prophet as Jesus was not honoured in his own town. And these are the people that would look after them and feed them and help them, enable them to, to spend time in that town or village and go to the synagogue and preach the good news. You see, Jesus is all-sufficient. And if you don't know him, or if you're just starting to know him, or even if you've been a believer for a long time, the message today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. He knows what you need. And he is still the all-sufficient provider of all things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He provides love, forgiveness, everlasting life. An easing of guilt and sorrow, freedom from pain and suffering, a life everlasting in the heavenly kingdom. But he will also provide you with the things you need here on earth because he loves you. 
Not too much. He won't give you too much that you will boast or become vain. And not so little that you will be in need or despair. But he says, my grace is sufficient each and every day. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10 again, going back to that, we find more information given in verse 18. Jesus talking to the disciples, he says, on my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how to say it. Do not worry again. And at that time you will be given what to say, for it, it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Here again, do not worry, you will be given. The Holy Spirit will speak through you when you are witnesses to his grace. You'll be given what you need. And isn't that tremendously encouraging for those of us who perhaps are anxious that think, yeah, we don't have the strength to speak to someone about the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a witness. This is tremendously encouraging. He will empower you if you just open your mouth and say, Lord, speak through me. That doesn't mean, though, that the Lord... The Holy Spirit will be talking through in all things. Some things that we say are of our own making. And our thoughts are not always his thoughts. And they're not always correct. You could be, I don't know, telling the kids off, arguing with a neighbour or a colleague. You could be spousing off about politics or something. He's not always speaking to you then. But Jesus says, you will be witnesses. And when you're witnessing, you'll be challenged. And when you have opportunity to speak about the gospel, he will be with you. He will be with you. Hallelujah. What a saviour. So how is this message received? How do people respond to the miracles, the healing and the preaching of the good news as the disciples go about? Well, this is my last heading, the accept and accept not. We read in verse 11, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So from this we can deduce that there were some people who accepted the preaching of repentance. But some most certainly accepted the healing because you cannot be healed unless you believe it will happen, unless you have the faith to believe it will happen. It says, they did drive out demons. So again, people must have accepted this new and amazing revolutionary teaching that they were going out with, so they could drive out demons. Others, though, as Jesus found, will not accept it. Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet. In ancient times, this was a, a symbolic act. Something the Pharisees use, in fact. It kind of means, I don't want a part of you clinging to me, least of all clinging to my shoes. I don't want to take a part of you with me. I'd rather shake it off. If you've ever been to the beach for the day, you will know that sand gets everywhere. And even a week later, there'll be sand on your mat in a car and on your shoes. And you'll open a bag that you took and be, you'll be shaking the sand out of it. Um, it gets everywhere. So you effectively brought a bit of that beach home with you. You brought it back with you from where you were. Well, if you were rejected, despised and disrespected, you didn't even want to take the dust from that town 
or from that home away with you. You didn't want a part of it to contaminate you. It's a visual warning as you head out of town to shake the dust off your feet. It's a warning that you're giving up on them effectively. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person that Jesus does that to, to shake his dust, the dust off the feet, off his feet and sandals. It's like Pilate. Pilate visibly washed his hands in front of the Pharisees to show that Jesus' blood was on their hands. He didn't want any part of it. And we have that expression today. So you'll hear, you may hear people say, oh, I'll wash my hands of it. You know, or we're, we're washing our hands of that situation or, or of those people. And it comes from the Bible. And in Matthew's account, again in chapter 10, verses 11 to 15, we see the little, again, a little bit more details added. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person who's going to greet you and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. And if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust of your feet. And then he comes with this really terrible warning. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day, on the day of judgment, than for that town or house. So which one are you? Will you let the peace that passes beyond understanding rest on you and your house? Will you welcome the teaching? Are you the one who welcomes the gospel in, who puts your faith in the Savior? Will you welcome the good news? Will you repent? Maybe you're a visitor here this morning, or maybe you're a regular worshiper, or maybe you're listening to this on the internet. Maybe you've never heard this gospel before. Will you accept it into your home? Share in this bread of life, the all-supplying Jesus. He loves you, and he knew you before you were born, as we heard from the reading at the very beginning of this morning's meeting on, on Ephesians chapter 1. He was willing to die for you, to take that suffering so that you may be free. Or will you reject the good news, preferring to stay in the flesh and blood world that Paul talks of? Will the last thing that you see of the gospel be the soles of the feet being shaken at you? If you are a Christian, but perhaps doubt that your own capabilities, your own strength, perhaps for you the time has come. Will you take on that responsibility that he gave the disciples? Will you heed the call of the Lord as the prophet did? The prophet Isaiah in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 8, where he said, this is the Isaiah writing, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. If you do go, you may find yourself feeling empowered to tell the good news. If you do go, you will feel the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And for you young people here today, who knows what the Lord has planned for you in your lives? Will you respond? Will you say, here I am, send me? But wherever you go in life, wherever the Lord leads you, remember that Jesus will be with you when you give a witness, when you give a testimony to the grace he has shown you. Listen again to the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, 
the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. If you are a follower of his, telling others, you're like that messenger, bringing good news from afar. Do you have beautiful feet? Don't reject the gospel. The enemy is out there, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and alive. And here right now in this day and age, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. So to conclude then, this was the beginning of the spreading of the good news, the gospel to the Jewish nation before his death and resurrection, before the Great Commission, before the day of Pentecost, it was the first sowing of the seeds by the followers of Jesus. And this has gone on since then for 2,000 years. The only reason I am here now, today, is because someone came into my home who shared the gospel, who preached the good news with me. Can you do this for someone else? Be bold. Declare the gospel. Matthew 10 again. Let's leave Matthew 10, verse 27. This is the last words. This is Jesus. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Go out, preach the good news. The Lord Jesus will be with you. Amen.